In the 1870s, archaeologists were digging around in the sands of Egypt, and they came across a, a large red granite obelisk. It was a big, just huge kind of like uh, monument that had been tipped over and left in the sand of Egypt. They came to name it Cleopatra's Needle. After kind of excavating it and evaluating it, the decision was made to donate it, donate the obelisk to, to, to England, where it would be put up along the river in the city of London. In that process of getting ready for that, they, they, uh, there was a, an area in the obelisk that was almost like, could serve like as a, a, as a, like a, um, a time capsule. There was a little vault in the bottom of this big monument that we're, and so they decided to put some items from the day in there, coins and writings and clothings and et cetera, and they formed a committee to pick all the different items that would be in there. And this committee was also charged with putting in to the time capsule the greatest verse out of the Bible. And unanimously, this group agreed on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This verse, John 3.16, which is probably the most famous of all of the passages or verses of Scripture that we have, written on eye black on Sundays and Saturdays across our fall and etc. It's a famous Scripture. It's been called the, the Bible in miniature. It's been called the little gospel. It's been called the Gospel in Superlatives. It's been called the Mount Everest of Holy Scripture. It's an incredible verse. There is so much truth that's embedded in it. There was a a famous young preacher who started preaching when he was about 16, and he died at the age of 33. And he, he was preaching four to five, sometimes six nights a week in his ministry. And every single sermon was built upon John 3.16. All of them different. It really is the answer for many of the things that we question in our own generation. For in it, we find the answer to atheism, because it starts with the statement, for God. It's our answer to fatalism, which believes that it is a God. He doesn't really care what happens to us. He's impersonal. It's just a force and an energy out there, because it tells us, for God so loved. It's an answer for nationalism, because God loves not just a nation, but he loves the world. It's an answer to materialism because this God who so loved gave. It's an answer to those who would say that God has no son. And there's a rapidly expanding world religion known as Islam or Mohammedism that says that God has no son. And we see in the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's an answer for those who would say that salvation is not available to all what we might call in our journey, especially among theologians, five-point Calvinists, where it says, whosoever believes. It's an answer to pluralism, which says that all religions are equal, and all of of them get us to the same place, because it tells us that whoever believes in Him. It's an answer for what is known as annihilationism, which basically says that this is all there is, and when you're dead, it's over. Your spirit doesn't go anywhere, your body doesn't go anywhere, it's just over. And it speaks about not perishing and having everlasting life. It is a powerful verse of Scripture for us to consider. And I've thought so even more 
as we've been exploring the book of Revelation these last 12 weeks as a congregation, and in recent weeks we've been looking particularly at some of the revelations that we can glean from Revelation. And we've been talking about heaven and hell and about the second coming of Christ and how important it is to have your name written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. It's incredibly important for us to understand how it is that we get our names into that book of life. So that our destiny isn't a place that the Scripture calls the lake of fire, but it's the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven as we learn through Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. And, and I just love to come to this verse annually. I mean, I look back kind of over my notes for the last eight years that I've been here at Hope Chapel, and, and, and I think I've preached out of this text at least once every year. And it's just an incredible place to come. And, and, and yet at the same time, that makes it kind of a challenge to not just say the same thing over and over again, you know. And so I want to approach it a little differently this year. And maybe it's just the memory of our Builders for Christ trip out to Ohio where we built this carport or this portico. And the first thing we had to do when building it was to get up the two load-bearing beams, you know. We had to set these six-by-six posts, and then we we literally constructed out of laminated beams that were there, these large laminated beams that span from the front of the building out to these posts and and all the way to the entire building of of this portico sat on these two laminated beams. They were the load-bearing points. This passage of Scripture has two load-bearing verbs. One is the word love, and one is the word believe. Everything in this passage orbits around one of those two verbs, around the word to love or the word to believe. So what I want us to do in our study today is take a few moments to look at each of these individually. So let's start with the word love. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, it's projected for you here on the screen. You can also, I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. If you're using one of our Black Pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 902. I think it's actually the very first verse on the page. Let me read this passage again for us out of the Holman Christian Standard Version. For it says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Powerful verse. Let's talk about this word love first. And, and, and in order for us to really understand the significance of this passage, we have to understand what this word love means in context. You know, we, we, English is not a very specific language. And we use the word love for all kinds of things, you know. You know, we, we, we love the Red Sox, you know. We love... Mint chocolate chip ice cream. You know, black raspberry is pretty close behind. Potassio is not too far behind that. But we love, you know, mint chocolate ice cream. You know, and we, we love our wives. You know, and, 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 we, and we use it for all different kinds of terminologies. The Greek language is far more specific. And so in their use of this word, they, they had three different words primarily that describe the different types of love. One of those was the word eros. We get the word erotic out of it. Believe it or not, that word is never found in the New Testament. Because it's a taking kind of love, it just has no place in what one preacher I read this week said, it has no place in the sweet soil of the New Testament. And, and it's that, that whole idea, we, you know, we go to take, to suck out, to rob kind of idea, to fulfill our own passions from someone else. Then it has the word ph- ph- philo, which we get the word brotherly love out of, like Philadelphia. 
And this is a give and take kind of love. You know, where, and, and that's what marriage, maybe at its best, is supposed to be like. Where we're, we're both giving equally to one another, and there's just this exchange, and, and you complete one another. But it's that idea of brotherly love. It's a give and take. And then there's the word that's, that is kind of made famous, at least in the church, the word agape, which is, we use it to describe divine type of love. And this is a love that gives. It, it gives not because the recipient is, has, has any value in it, but it gives because of the character of the one who loves. In this particular case, it's God. For God so loved the world. And so you see in this text that it's talking about the fact that God loved the world with a love that flowed out of Himself because it's His nature. God is love. But this passage tells us all kinds of things about the manner in which God has loved us. Actually, the Holman Christian Standard Version does a wonderful job when it says, God loved the world in this way. Because that's really the sense of the underlying original language that the New Testament was written in. But when you look at this, one of the things you see is that, is that God loved us intensely. This little word so in here isn't just a, a throwaway kind of word, but it's, desen- it's designed to present some kind of, a, of an urgency, a, a sense of volume, a magnitude. God has loved us so much is kind of the idea. It's not like a flickering candle, but it's a blasting sunlight. It's not like a dripping faucet that keeps you awake in the night, but it's like a rushing river, like when they release the water behind a dam and it begins to flow out with great pressure. God has loved us so intensely, but He's also loved the world sacrificially. He's given His Son. You know, I, I, I just I can't imagine the, the dialogues that were going on in heaven when the Son of God was leaving heaven to come to earth. Now, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, you know, not only questions probably being proposed to Jesus, like, what are you doing? Wait, I mean, the angel's saying, what are you doing? Why are you going down there? You know? Why are you going to go do that kind of idea? And, and questions to the Father, like, we don't understand what you're doing. You wonder what the, the, you know, the, the sun and the planets and the moon thought as the, as the sun made his way to earth. You know? But he gave his only son. Many of you, like me, are parents. You can't imagine what that's like. To give up your son, not just to leave the comfort of home, but to go to a place where you know he's going to die. Some of you have had children in the military who have served in harm's way. I got a nephew there now. Maybe not quite the same thing, but it puts a whole different perspective on the sacrifice that one can make for your nation. When you think about the way that God has loved us by giving his son, not only to leave the comforts of heaven and to endure the hardship of earth, but to die on a cross with criminals, and to taste sin for the very first time so that the Father and the Son could no longer be in relationship as He literally became sin, the Scripture tells us. It's a massive sacrifice of this God who loves us out of His own character. He's also loved us uniquely. He gave us His only Son. Not like He had a backup. You know, it's not like, well, I'll give you my number two son or my number three or even my number one. Because he, he gave his only son. It, it's absolutely unique. And he also loved us personally because it's God who's doing the loving. This isn't some just abstract idea, some theological hula hoops that people could go through. But this is the, the eternal God of the universe who's giving up his son because he 
as best as we can understand him as a person, has loved the world. It's a personal love. And it comes to us. Well, what about the object of this love? It's described here as the world. John uses this term actually quite a bit in his writings, in the gospel, and then also in in, uh, his three epistles as well in the book of Revelation. For him, it can have a couple of ideas. It's it's the word cosmos underneath it. For him, it, it can refer to the idea of mankind organized against God, organized without God. And it's used that sense in the book of Revelation. He also uses that imagery of Babylon to describe that. This is mankind trying to do life without God, trying to build its tower of Babel so it can reach into the heavens and maybe have a chance to take over. And that kind of idea. That's, it's man trying to do life without God intentionally. There's that aspect of it. There's also the idea that for John that the world just literally means that's the neighborhood that people live in. It's Beeman Road. It's your street. It's the streets all the way around the world that encompass the 6.6 plus billion people who live here today. It it incorporates all of that. And and actually, you probably ought to keep both of those senses in mind. This just infinite God of the universe has loved the world, not only just the people in it, but the people who have chosen to organize their lives totally without God. Intentionally, he has loved them and given his only son. Now, if you can explain that emotionally, you're far more articulate than I am. A mother was once asked, she had 10 children, you know, and she was once asked, she said, you know, do you ever neglect one of your kids? I mean, you got 10 kids, you can only go so far, you know, and, and her response was, she said, no, never. She said, you know, I didn't, I didn't divide my love between 10 kids. My mother's love got multiplied so it could cover 10 kids. The love of God got multiplied to cover the six Point six plus billion people in our world. It's an incredible thought. And this is the one load-bearing verb that holds up the whole gospel. For God so loved the world. Then you have the other verb. It's this word, believe. It, it's, and, and, you know, if you're going to... Z- you know, if you've zoned out, this is a great time to zone back in because i got to tell you, I think that... that this, this whole idea of belief is so misunderstood in the church today. The, the, the saddest thing, probably, is that there are literally thousands of people across our nation who are going to church today who have a belief in God, and it's not even in the zip code of what it means to have a saving faith in Christ that actually produces eternal life. Their notion of what it means to believe in God is so far and foreign from what the Scripture teaches us that it's doesn't even lead them into the house of God. And so we look at this word, and it's the word uh, pistis underneath it, the word faith. And it, and, it, and it really probably has a better translation as trust, but, you know, but it comes out as, as belief or trust. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There, there's a, a, a couple of, of pieces that go in there. There's a, there's a when you think about the nature of saving faith, it, it, a lot of times we think, well, it's like, you know, okay, I, it, it's just a simple belief in an historical fact that Jesus lived he, in Nazareth, you know, and he was, went into Jerusalem and they crucified him on a Friday night and they raised him. And, and, and it's far more encompassing than that. Saving faith, saving trust in God is both mental and volitional and emotional. It, it's with all your being. 
You know, it's the first command. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That sense of trust, that belief in God is mental, and it's volitional, and it's emotional. It's mental because there is truth to it. There is facts or components to it. But it's also beyond it. It's a sense of confidence. It's a sense of assurance, which is a mental thing, you know. And even, you know, I'm... You, some of you know I love I love sports. I've played sports all my life, and now I'm a I'm a golfer. And one of the things I, I I've started to learn is that just the confidence in my shot is almost the difference whether or not it's going to be any good or not. You know, I played the, the other day with a, a fellow pastor, and and I, I was right in the middle of the fair. We had a great approach shot, and I just wasn't sure I was going to hit it well, and I duffed it right into the water. And the water was like that way. I mean, how do you do that? It takes a lot of skill to hit it that way. You know, when you're aiming this way. You know, and and. But it's, it's a mental thing. And there's this sense of, of, of confidence that goes with it. But it's also volitional. This probably comes out no place better than in Romans 10, 9, where it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we think confess with, your, with our mouths. All right, very good. I'll just hop over here into my closet and I'll say, Jesus, you're Lord. That's not what it means at all. This means standing in the middle of the square of the city on the day when the Roman government is saying you have to offer worship to the emperor as God. And you stand in the midst of all those people at the risk of your life and you say Jesus is the only Lord. That's what it means to confess Jesus is Lord. Not just a simple I've loved Jesus. But it's in the practical ways in which you live your life. At those moments where the critical choices are, you say, I believe. It's a volitional choice. It's an act of will to believe. And it's emotional. It leads to a loving, ongoing, life-changing relationship with the Father, like Debbie was talking about. Trying to get past the church and all that kind of stuff and say, this is how Jesus is changing my life. Because I'm living in relationship with Him. He's changing me. This is an emotional connection. That's what true belief is about. It's about believing in who Jesus is. So much so that you invest all of who you are in it. You risk all of your future on it. And you live and have a passion in your life to somehow glorify and honor Him by living the Jesus way. This faith is very particular. Because it says it has to be in him. That whoever believes in him. It's not just belief in God. It's a belief in the God who sent his son. Because he took sin so seriously. That he had to provide an eternal solution. To the guilt and the consequences of sin. It's a belief in the Christ. Who is the only son of God. Who literally became God on earth in human flesh. And gave himself up as the only means of our salvation by his sacrifice on the cross. It's very particular and very specific. You know some of you probably read my column this past week in in the newsletter. Where I try to talk about that one of the, I think is one of the most prevailing sins in our culture today. You know we we, we have lots of, of things but... But we don't talk about idolatry very much anymore. You know, cause maybe it's because we don't have wooden idols, you know, going up across our countrysides, or we don't have, you know, carved idols that have been built, and people aren't out there offering up their, their vegetables and their, their flock to these idols and somehow trying to control the world. You know, and so we don't think, well, idolatry is not a big issue. It, or, or maybe we think, well, it's really just, that really just has to do with kind of things like materialism and, you know, self-centeredness and that kind of stuff. And that's idolatry. I, I, you know, I think the biggest form of idolatry that 
prevails in our society today is a belief in a false god. And there's lots of folks sitting in chairs like you are today who have just kind of done our la carte out of the scriptures. I like the loving part of God, but I don't like the holy part where he expects a lot out of me, you know? I like the grace. I like mercy. I love the fact that God provides and he's faithful. I like all that stuff, but the idea that he wants to send me someplace that I might not like, the fact that he might want me to serve sacrificially or to give sacrificially, you know, those kind of, I don't want to hear that aspect of it. I love the Savior part. I don't like the Lord part very much. And so we just kind of pick and choose and say, this is the God I believe in. And we create our life's little... Christian idol that we call God. And here it's very particular. You believe in Him. And all that the life of Christ, the presence of Christ, the work of Christ communicates about who God is. That He is Jesus, Savior, and Lord. You see specifically the result of this belief. It leads to where you either perish or you have eternal life. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. I don't know if I could provide any better descriptions about what it means to perish than we've just read in the book of Revelation this summer. Many of you took on the challenge to read through the book of Revelation several times over the summer. It's not a pretty picture. What's interesting is that the New Testament, and you could look at 1 Corinthians 1.18 and some other places, talk about the fact that the state of perishing starts now and is completed in eternity. Just like our salvation starts now, and then it's completed in eternity, our perishing starts now. And it's both physical and spiritual, and it culminates. And this idea of perishing is, is it's not something that it just ends and it's, and it's done, but it's something that goes on and on and on. And, 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 and kind of reaching back a couple of weeks to when we were talking about heaven and hell, hell is the place where... God sends, he honors the choices of people who said, I do not want God in my life. I do not want the God of the Holy Scriptures in my life. I've rejected that understanding of God. And he honors that request and he puts him in a place where he is not. And because he's not there and everything that is good comes from God, there is not one molecule of goodness in hell. None. People think they're going to go and they're going to, you know, storm. They're going to be able to celebrate with their friends. That's just craziness. Because there is no good there whatsoever. There's no light. There's no shelter. There's no food. There's no water. There's no love. There's no anything. Because there's nothing that's good that's there. And it just goes on. As the scripture tells us a little later, we read earlier, that those who have not believed are condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of the one and the only Son of God. But then on the contrast, and this is why the Son came, because He does not want the world to be judged, but He wants the world to be delivered, to be saved. That if we choose to believe with this life-giving faith in Jesus Christ, the experience that we have is everlasting life. And it lasts for now and forever. Instead of total separation from God, we will be with God forever. And it's just the absolute opposite. But stuck in the middle of these two load-bearing verbs of love and belief is the life-changing pronominal. I'm giving you an English lesson today, aren't I? You know, And that's the word whoever or whosoever. This, this is the hinge word. 
in this entire verse is the word whosoever. I know we can get into a lot of theological talks about the fact is, is salvation all a God thing? And it absolutely is. But in the midst of all of that, the Scripture clearly teaches ongoing human responsibility. So even though God is the architect and the initiator and the concluder of salvation, there's a place for all of us to stand before and make our choice. And, and I don't know if I can describe that any more than I can describe that God's three in one or that God's eternal. That his love for us never started. It just always was. I, I don't know how to describe that. And I don't know how to describe that salvation is all a God thing. It depends all on him. But you and I have to stand and make a choice. Whosoever will. Probably the biggest word in the New Testament is this idea of so that. Everyone who believes. It's that idea. It's the biggest but. But whosoever believes. I don't know where you stand today. Whether or not you look at this passage of Scripture and say, my life, my spiritual life, my family life, my earthly life, all of it is built on these load-bearing verbs of the love of God and belief in His Son. And the moment of choice is before us. For whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Heaven or hell. So by invitation this morning, I, I want to be very clear. This isn't fancy, not drawn out or anything else. Is that if you're, if you're here this morning and you, know, you say, I, I don't know if my life is built on these load-bearing verbs of the love of God and belief in His Son, now's your moment to respond. You know, on our back of our cards, every single week, we, we include a place to say, I, I choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To step over that load-bearing thing from unbelief into belief and to become a follower after God. If you've not made that choice yet today, to confront all of the stuff in your life with, accumulated with all the rest of the stuff in people's lives around the world and across the generations, that was the reason why Jesus had to come in the first place. The things that we call sin. If you've not confronted that and realize your need for Christ, I invite you to step over from the world of unbelief into belief and to build your life on these load-bearing verbs of the love of God and belief in His Son. And as we sing, you know, I invite you... It's not something we do very often, so if you're a visitor here today, we're a little different, but you know what... I want to give you an opportunity to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord for the very first time. And, and here's how you can do it. While we're singing, and they'll be collecting the offering, there'll be lots of stuff going on, you can just walk down and hand me your, your connection card and say, I'm confessing to you today that I've made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. And I'm going to go declare it in the places where I work, the places where I live, in my neighborhood, all those places. For God has so loved the world that even if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, it seems incredible to many of us that simply but sincerely acknowledging who you are Acknowledging our need for you because of our sinfulness. And by placing our faith and acknowledging our faith, our trust, our life-giving trust in you, 
that we can be saved for eternity. Somehow or another, we think there needs to be more to that. God, I don't know how there can be when we give you our entire lives, if we do it right. But somehow or another, we feel like we have to get to a certain place. We have to know a certain amount of stuff or whatever. And God, it's a part of the marvelousness of your sovereignty that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God, let all of us leave this place today being the ones who have called upon your names. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.